Welcome to this edition of the IWICFITrainer.net podcast. I think most of us have seen the media reports about the issue of small unmanned aircraft systems, UAS, known informally as drones, operated by civilians and the media interfering with fire suppression operations. Drones buzz the aircraft picking up and delivering water and fire retardants to wildfires. Drones have circled around active fire scenes recording footage of suppression operations, sometimes nearly colliding with aircraft fighting the fire. In several cases, including in Utah and California, fire officials have grounded firefighting aircraft due to the threat of collision with drones, allowing the fire to continue to burn until it was again safe to fly. These drone activities are prohibited by FAA rules that require drones to stay under 400 feet and keep clear of aircraft. But that has not stopped the drone pilots from breaking those rules. The U.S. Forest Service started a public service campaign to educate the public, but still drones violate the rules and common sense. States are fighting back. In fact, some states have made it a crime to fly a drone over an active wildfire, but there are logistical challenges in finding the individuals piloting these drones, which can fly long distances away from their operators. The state of California is even offering a $75,000 reward for information leading to the capture of the operators who flew drones over the Lake Fire, the North Fire, and Mill 2 Fire of 2015. There's another side to this issue, though. Like most technologies, there are positives and negatives for the fire service with regard to drones. Drones can also be a tool for the fire service and fire investigators to get a bird's-eye view of a scene, something that in the past was time-consuming and resource-intensive, requiring uh, either a high aerial ladder or a helicopter call-out. Now, an inexpensive drone remotely controlled by a trained first responder can gather critical evidence that can aid in an investigation of a structure fire or a wildfire. To use this tool properly, emergency response agencies need to know the FAA regulations for operating drones by a public entity. New rules have taken effect as of August this year, and here's what you need to know. You have two options. Number one, you can follow the FAA's small UAS rule, known as Part 107, or if you want to operate UAS for a government entity outside of these rules, you may apply for a Blanket Public Certificate of Authorization, a COA, which allows flight at or below 400 feet in Class G airspace nationwide. Self-certification of the UAS pilot and the ability to obtain emergency COAs under special circumstances do happen. To learn more, contact 9-AJV-115 dash u-a-s-c-o-a at faa.gov that's a long one you can rewind a little bit to hear it public sector agencies can apply for a coa on the faa website and we have that link for you in the resources for this podcast here are the major provisions of the new part 107 regulations that have gone in effect as of this past august for uas systems weighing less than 55 pounds and conducting non-hobbyist operations the pilot must be at least 16 years old and have a remote pilot certificate with a small UAS rating or be directly supervised by someone with a certificate. The pilot must keep the UAS within visual line of sight. The pilot must conduct a pre-flight visual and operational check to ensure safety systems are functioning properly. Operations are allowed during daylight and twilight if the UAS has anti-collision lights. So that is a maximum altitude of 400 feet or within 400 feet of a structure. Your maximum ground speed 
can only be up to 100 miles per hour or 87 knots. Flights over unprotected people on the ground who aren't directly participating in the UAS operation are prohibited and all drones under 55 pounds must be registered with the FAA. You can read the provisions of Part 107 and the summary provided in the resources with this podcast. Again, a public entity can obtain a waiver to operate outside of these rules. Let's take a few minutes to discuss how fire investigators can start using UAS technology in their investigative work. With us today is Bob Toth. He's a certified fire investigator with the International Association of Arson Investigators, and he's the president of Iris Investigations Incorporated in Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. My pleasure, Rod. Thank you. So talk a little bit about investigative uses of UAS, uh, specifically in the fire investigation world. Sure. Well, well first of all, to, to those unfamiliar with the uh, acronym, it stands for Unmanned Aircraft Systems. Uh, they may actually be more familiar with things like drones and um, uh, quadcopters and things of that nature, but the, the truly technical term or proper term is the unmanned aircraft systems. The opportunity to see uh, on larger scenes the burn patterns or perhaps in an explosion uh, situation, you can see the blast pattern, uh, which is uh, helpful in analyzing the data. The, the, the patterns and information you see from the ground uh, certainly is helpful and has been helping uh, fire investigators for generations. But uh, uh, the elevated views in certain situations will certainly uh, provide more data to help test your hypotheses and, and narrow down an origin of the fire. There's so, also uh, other things than just photography or video that can be taken from the air. There are there are other third-party applications and tools that can be attached to a UAS uh, to uh, create some demonstrative evidence or to uh, do things such as uh, identify or clearly show changes in elevation, which in a situation like a wildland fire can help explain uh, fire patterns and movement. Okay. So what does a fire investigator or his or her agency have to do to start using the technology or drones? Well, as of uh, August 29th of, of this year, 2016, the FAA came out with new rules called Part 107. Uh, prior to that time, pilots or operators of UAS would have to uh, get what's called a Section 333 exemption. Uh, speaking from personal experience, I had gone through that uh, rather arduous and uh, at times uh, expensive process. And uh, as I got my 333 exemption, it also included becoming a licensed pilot, which I found a bit strange since you're standing on the ground watching this thing uh, fly above your fire scene anyways. I, I, I felt a little bit uh, uh, concerned about the necessity to uh, become a pilot if I'm still standing on the ground operating this particular aircraft. Uh, but since that time, they've, they've uh, changed the rules, uh, created Part 107, which makes it now much easier and simpler for a pilot in command or, or operator of an aircraft uh, to get the necessary uh, certifications uh, and testing to uh, fly a UAS for commercial purposes. What, what other things, I, I mean, I'm thinking as, as a pilot bringing, some, bringing a drone over a fire scene, you know, there are going to be things that I'm doing, uh, lowering altitude, raising altitude, traveling to different areas. Can you talk a little bit about techniques and, and maybe a specific where you were looking for something that you found? Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's 
first of all, it's, it's important to remember that with these types of uh, tools, there are some specific rules. Prior to all of Section 333 and Part 107, we would typically fly in what was referred to as a hobbyist rules. And in fact, even today, any UAS operator can go out to a location, a park, an, an open field any day of the week and fly under these hobbyist rules without any uh, anything less or without anything more than just having the craft uh, registered with the FAA. It's about a three-minute process and it costs you about five dollars. But uh, uh, once once you start using the tool for commercial purposes, taking photographs and things like that, you need that uh, certification. You need to comply with Part 107. But uh, with the technology that's available out there and the the digital photography and video equipment that may come already attached and integral to the to the uh, aircraft, uh, you don't have to get above the ceiling that the FAA requires of your UAS. In fact, the FAA rules state that you cannot fly higher than 400 feet uh, above ground level. And uh, in my experience, I've never had to uh, go above 200 feet to get within my frame of view or my shot from the camera, uh, my fire scene. So uh, the 400-foot the ceiling is, is not an issue for uh, most, if not all, fire scenes uh, that you may come across. So did you find yourself trying to get lower, closer to a scene? Well, there, there, there have been a couple uh, scenarios and examples uh, in scenes that I've been involved in where we've had uh, commercial structures. We've had collapse of the structure in certain parts of the building. And uh, obviously, because of the compromise to the building, uh, we couldn't go in there right away. And there have, there have been times when I have hovered over the scene and got the craft down uh, low enough to where we can videotape or take photographs of the damage from the UAS and not compromise uh, any investigator safety or other equipment uh, trying to get in there to uh, identify the uh, safety hazards and the conditions we may have to work in or the uh, the tools and equipment we may need to render the building safe. So yes, I have uh, dropped in low into some of the collapse zones to get some good images of what we may need to deal with in the building. So this is a different type of evidence. One of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about is how you know photos and video taken by a pilot who's not connected to the actual vehicle as evidence, how they're preserved. How's the process uh, of documentation dealt with? Oh, it, it's, it's really no different than any of the video or photographs you take with your DSLR or any digital video camera you may use from the ground. Uh, speaking again from experience, I, uh, my typical procedure is, because I have enough to do concentrating to uh, uh, keep my craft uh, where I want it and uh, flying it in a safe environment, I typically fly uh, using just my 4K video uh, function on the plane. As, as I'm uh, circling the building or, or looking at certain portions of the building, it's, it's constantly recording uh, video 4K quality. And the reason I like that is, is because then I can just capture frames from the video if I needed a particular still image of it. Now, the downside of that is, is you could be looking at, you know, anywhere from 3 to 12 minutes of video and only find one small section that you need. Uh, i.e. it's all raw video and you're looking for a particular viewpoint of the uh, fire damage. So uh, what I've done in the past is I've taken one of those frame shots or I've taken a few stills from the video and used it as part of my analysis and part of my report writing 
But at the same time, I've saved all the raw video, so if someone wants to come back and take a look at all that raw video, they're more than welcome to do it. So it's it's all saved and preserved uh, the same way as I would save any DSLR photos or uh, digital video that I take from the ground. One thing I'm thinking of, and you know that I get involved in a lot of audio and video, I'm thinking of big files. And uh, there's a lot more than just having this drone and being able to know how to operate it. When you get back uh, and you've been shooting 4K for that much time, tell me a little bit about your process. Share with some other folks uh, what you needed to make this a productive part of your business. Well, the 4K video, uh, as you know, they are large files, and they do require a computer that can handle that that size of a video and, and create smooth video, at least have it somewhat enjoyable, if you will, while watching it on your computer, a, a typical uh, uh, laptop of maybe even one year or two years ago or even a desktop, uh, you may notice if you don't have a good video card that it's going to be choppy and it's going to be frustrating to watch and it may freeze up. So you're going to need some post-production equipment that can handle 4K video. Quite honestly, it's it's an investment, but it's it's a smaller investment than the UAS itself. Again, the same type of things you would be using to capture a frame from the video uh, if you put your uh, company logo in the corner of the video or anything like that, all of that, all of that stuff should, should be documented in the processes you went through to create that final product. And at the same time, keeping the raw video available in case anyone wants to uh, examine it. All right. So if you're giving some recommendations to uh, a single fire investigator or a public sector agency, of how to start, you know, telling them how to start regard to the technology and compliance with the new regulations. Give them some advice. I would look at uh, the various types of uh, equipment out there. Um, Identify what you want to be able to do with it. If you want to take video, if you want to take still images, consider whether you want a craft that can uh, carry a payload of perhaps your current video or digital photography equipment, or do you want the video and digital photography integrated into the craft itself. My recommendation would be to look in that direction. Uh, If you've got a craft that already has digital photography and video equipment integral and and integrated into the craft, you don't have to worry about increasing your payload or lifting more weight than the craft may be designed to. It's already in there. Uh, Take a look at the uh, control system, the navigation system, and the electronics. Uh, nowadays, uh, some of these crafts are, are absolutely amazing with the GPS technology uh, and the controllers uh, and the way you operate the craft. Some of these crafts, you can uh, it'll bring up a Google Map image of where you're at at the time you, you uh, initiate operations. You can actually uh, draw a flight pattern on the Google Map and the craft will follow that flight pattern. Some of the technology, and, and this may come uh, in handy with your SOPs that you should develop and things like that. The navigation technology has virtually black box technology where after a flight, you can review all of the systems post-flight to see, uh, uh, if, for instance, if, if you have some sort of incident where you have to bring the craft down uh, immediately because of some sort of power problem. This technology will allow you to review that information and be able to identify problems that you may have had with the craft or during operation and things like that. So uh, I would recommend to uh, anyone 
considering this technology is one, to do your homework, uh, identify what you want to do with it or what you think you should be able to do with it, and then search for the equipment that are that is going to allow you to do it. It's not an inexpensive uh, process or or procedure. Uh, I'll forewarn you there. Uh, it, there is a learning curve with being able to operate the aircraft. Make sure that you comply with all of the FAA requirements. And the first thing right out of the uh, box would be to register the craft with the FAA. As I said earlier, it's a five dollar fee and about a three minute process online. And essentially, what they do is they issue issue you a uh, unique serial or N number uh, that you attach to the craft, just like every other um, piloted aircraft in the country. It has a identification number on it. And then uh, get some training. Find someone that, that has used the craft. Uh, typically, if you uh, purchase it from a, a reputable uh, a dealer or manufacturer, these types of things, nothing like on eBay or anything like that, they uh, always offer some sort of uh, flight training. Uh, there's certainly a number of, of uh, organizations out there that can help you. A lot of your local radio-controlled aircraft clubs are, are certainly around all over the country that can help you with that. And before you bring it out to the fire scene uh, to start putting it to work for you, make sure you're very comfortable with its operations and the safety procedures. You can uh, start right away to uh, work on getting your Part 107 certification. And uh, when all those things come together, you're ready to go. All right. One uh, thought that I, I'm sitting here saying, you know, we're talking about money, and, and you and I both know technology costs change all the time. I also know you're a real meticulous person, um, and I've seen the kind of equipment and the way that you gear yourself up. Thinking about a range of cost for, for somebody who's either private sector or public sector, if they wanted to put together a budget, what do you think it is these days? You know, the combination of the equipment um, that's going to go airborne and the post-production video. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I, I would say, uh, as, you, as you look at the craft with the type of technology and navigation systems you need, and you, want, you would probably want to buy extra batteries for it, uh, a good robust uh, case to keep it clean and safe and, and uh, protected as you transport it. Uh, you could be, look, it, along with the cost of training, uh, certification, uh, testing, things like that, you could be looking anywhere from uh, five to $10,000. Okay. It sounds awful reasonable for something that can be an incredibly valuable tool that maybe on one scene could, uh, could help you figure something out that could save a whole lot more money than that. You're absolutely right. Um, it, it's not uh, a tool that you would use on every scene, but uh, when you get to those scenes that you know it could be helpful, you're absolutely right. It could, it's a, a reasonable investment in time and uh, training. And, and in the public sector, uh, you know, there's pressure on budget, um, well, in both private and public sector. So I, I just wanted to give people an idea of what they might be going after for a budget um, to right. do something like this. And, and, I, and I can also say that, that in the five or six years that I have, have been uh, involved with these types of tools, the, the ability to control and navigate and use the tool in the way that fire investigators typically would use the tool in a fire scene investigation has gotten uh, uh, considerably easier. Uh, the control of the craft, the GPS technology, the, uh, the safety, the fail-safes that they've got built into the crafts now certainly reduce the stress, if you will, of operating uh, your uh, five to $10,000 investment over a fire scene. What about weather? 
What about uh, the location you live in the country? I mean, you're in Colorado. Um, do, right. do you deal with, when you're thinking about making this purchase or when you're thinking about getting involved, is there any light you can shed on, how, you know, is the decision going to change? How Have you dealt with wind? I mean, you know. Well, sure, yeah. The In fact, the uh, uh, the conditions uh, you would fly a UAS or or the considerations you make in flying a UAS are really no different than the considerations you may make in flying a uh, fixed-wing aircraft, a single-engine fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, wind certainly plays a big role, and again, depending on the type of craft, the size of craft you buy, certain uh, pieces of equipment can are much uh, easier to fly in, in uh, windy conditions than others. Uh, the, the particular piece of equipment I've got, I've, I've used it in 15-mile-per-hour uh, winds gusting up to 20 miles per hour, and uh, that's, that's about as much as I want to do, quite frankly. But you, you would take the same precautions and considerations uh, as you would flying a regular fixed-wing aircraft. You obviously, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say obviously, but you certainly don't want to uh, uh, take an aircraft that is uh, powered by uh, lithium-ion batteries and all the high-end electronics. Uh, you certainly don't want to fly it in, in wet or rainy conditions. That may, may seem obvious to some, but not to all. Uh, and uh, most, in fact, most of your manufacturer's recommendations and, and operation manuals uh, strictly have, uh, address that, talk about wind speeds and uh, weather conditions and rain and stuff like that. You just don't want to fly in certain conditions like that. I take particular notice to the wind. There are some third-party applications. There's some uh, apps out there that, that give you weather conditions specific for UAS operation including uh, magnetic fields that may compromise your communications and things like that. And it'll let you know if where you're at, because it locates you with a GPS, that uh, it'll, it'll give you a, a window of time where the conditions are optimal for, for flight operations. And at the same time, it also gives you uh, a time frame when conditions are, are not good and, and UAS operations should not be conducted. I personally like to get to a scene uh, very early in the day before winds kick up or rains come in and things like that. It's much calmer in the morning. And um, you know, quite frankly, there's fewer people around, too. Those are other safety considerations sure. you have to have when you fly a UAS. And one other thing I'd, li- I'd like to tell the listeners is, as if they uh, as as they uh, move forward with investigating this, the FAA has, has got a website, faa.gov. Uh, forward slash UAS, and it talks about all of the uh, requirements to uh, comply with Part 107. It also has a list of uh, suggested study materials, everything from uh, the Airman Certification Standards to the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, because in order to fly commercially, you do have to take a test with the FAA. Uh, It's a 60-question written test. Uh, You also have to uh, pass a background investigation by the TSA and a few other things. But uh, trust me, it's it's a far less arduous process than the uh, prior Section 333. And uh, this particular rule, this Part 107, allows you to fly under certain conditions, which uh, specifically are a 400-foot ceiling, and you have to maintain a visual line of sight which most, if not all, fire scene investigations, your UAS will maintain a, you'll maintain a visual line of sight. Some of the other uh, uses for these types of uh, aircraft uh, around the country involve autonomous flight where you could be flying miles away from your control, uh, but that's uh, certainly not, uh, not typical of a fire scene investigation. I'm very grateful, and I think a lot of other people will, for uh, 
you're sharing the information you've learned, Bob. I know when I went out looking for people to talk to about this, your name kept coming up. And uh, <laughs> so what the heck, we had to give you a call. And, and again, sure. appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this emerging technology and, and how it relates to the federal regulations. Once again, the president of Iris Fire Investigations, Bob Toth, and a certified fire investigator with the International Association of Arson Investigators. Thanks for your time again, Bob. My pleasure, Rod. Have a good day. You too. Be well. And now for the IWI News. Let's give the office a call. IWAI, Kate speaking. Hi, Kate. This is Rod Ammon calling on behalf of CFITrainer.net. You got a moment? Certainly do. For you, I do. Well, that's pretty awesome, and we're very grateful. So tell me, what's going on in training with the International Association of Arson Investigators? A lot. Absolutely a lot. Um, we're getting ready to put on a, a beautiful 40-hour fundamentals of fire investigation down in Huntsville, Alabama with our partners ATF. And the class is almost completely filled. So we are doing that next month. And that's going to be fabulous because they've got that new facility, as I've said before. So that's most recent. We have four... Ex, um, I'm sorry, evidence collection technician um, classes going on between now and the end of the year. So if anyone out there needs to do the practicum, just give me a call and we can sign you up to one of the classes. Uh, also, we're doing an expert witness courtroom testimony class, again, down in Huntsville. What else? Let's see. Um, the complex... Uh, Fire for the insurance industry is going strong. That will be in November, and that class is almost completely filled. That's backed by popular demand. Again, another one in Huntsville. So we're down south this till the end of the year, it seems like. So when somebody wants to find out a little bit more or they want to register, what do you want them to do? Well, we'd like them to go on our website because everything is there. But if they find that they can't locate what they want to find, they can always call us here at the office. We're going to try to do this on a regular basis so uh, we hear from you guys actually what's going on because training's pretty dynamic. Right. And like you said, we would like to hear back from our members because we don't know how well or how not well we're doing if they don't let us know. I am very grateful for your time. You're welcome, sir. Anytime. There was one other person I wanted to speak with, and that was Deborah Keeler. Would she be around? Hold on one moment, and I'll see if she is in. Thanks very much, Kate. Okay. So uh, we appreciate Kate transferring us over, and I'm on the phone now with Deborah Keeler. Deborah, we uh, told people last month that we were going to give them an update, not only in training, but in some of the things that you're working on related to partnerships and other news in the IWI. What's What's up? Lots of exciting things are going on right now. The most exciting for me is the collaboration over the last few years with our work with the Insurance Commission on Arson Control. ICAC is a organization with a very similar mission to the IAAI, but instead of members, they have corporate members, company members. And at the ITC in Las Vegas in April 2017, ICAC will be joining the IAAI and presenting a two-day insurance track. Nice. So um, that does two things, I guess. One, it, it gets us more involved with some people we've been working with for years. 
And at the same time, it's more convenient for people on both sides, uh, insurance and in fire investigation, to get together and network. Absolutely. It not only makes things easier, it allows us to share resources instead of doubling the efforts for the same resources, but the networking opportunities for the fire investigators and the insurance community to come together are really exciting, but also to provide training for not only fire investigators, but fire loss professionals. Got it. Registration will be coming up in the near future for any of you that are interested in joining us in Las Vegas. So, Deborah, I also heard from Kate that there's some things happening in Alabama, um, and that relates to our partnership and I think also an award this month. Uh, coming up in November, we will be featuring our complex uh, fire investigation for the insurance company uh, class. It's a week-long program held at NCEDAR, National Center for Explosives Training, in Huntsville, Alabama. And this has been a long time, uh, probably close to a 25-year collaboration with the ATF. We're real excited with the program. Following up with our relationship with the ATF, the IAAI was very honored to be given an award this past August in Washington, D.C. by the ATF. The IAAI received the honor award. This is given to those uh, non-ATF employees or organizations for assisting the ATF in achieving their mission and investigation. And uh, our executive team and our director of government affairs, Steve Austin, and our advocacy chairman, Roger Krupp, as well as President Cotting, uh, first vice president Bennett, uh, second vice president uh, Moylan, and past president Heenan were all on hand in Washington, D.C. to get the award. It was real exciting. Well, you're doing real well with names. I'll tell you, uh, you could ha- you could handle the Academy Awards. I couldn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I don't know about Academy Awards, but definitely the IAAI, you know, who's who. Um, I'm real familiar with them. Well, we appreciate the time. Is there anything else before uh, we move on and close up this podcast that you wanted to mention or say to the folks out there? Uh, one more item that I wanted to mention was uh, the NFPA and IAAI agreement to develop joint training coming up in early 2017. As we all know and are anticipating, the NFPA 921 update is going to be published the last uh, month or so of 2016. And we have come to an agreement with uh, NFPA and we'll be putting on a one-day 921 update in conjunction with and cooperation with the National Fire Protection Association. This is really exciting news. Throughout the fire investigation industry, we know that NFPA 921 is the guide for fire investigation. And IAAI, we use 921 and 1033 as, as the minimum standards for all of our training and our, and our programs. So being able to partner with that entity who, who publishes you know, this important document, fire investigation, and be able to reach out to our enhanced chapters and all of our different chapters to schedule a one-day program and have um, a, representative, a representative from 921 or 1033 part of the class as well as a representative from NFPA. We think this is a great opportunity, and um, I believe our members are going to be really excited with the pricing that we have um, for this one-day program. So another great reason why people should be making sure that they get an international membership to the IAAI. I mean, not only uh, you know, do they have all of the member benefits that Kate had mentioned before that can be listed, that are listed up on Fire Arson, 
they're part of this network um, that really runs fire investigation in the United States and around the world. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your time. My pleasure. I hope you're doing well, and uh, we'll see you real soon. I think mid-year is coming up in November. Around the corner. All right. Thanks again for your time. We've been talking with Deborah Keeler, the Executive Director of the International Association of Arson Investigators. Thanks, Rob. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. That's it for today. We're very grateful to everybody who helps make the podcast possible. Thanks for your time today as you've listened to uh, what's going on in the IWI and learned hopefully a little bit about what's uh, new in the drone world. This is Rod Ammon for CFITrainer.net and the International Association of Arson Investigators. 